In fact, he named it the Dean Method. He named it after himself. What a bad word. (laughs) What a really bad word. Yeah. Dirty Dean. (laughs) Dirty (laughs) Dean. I can't cuss as we got you know, alliterations work a little bit. Alliterations do work. That is a good, that's a good one. Apoptosis is going mad, my liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry. Of stardust and chemistry. Hello and welcome to Cowboy Chemistry, where we talk about the wilder days of chemistry. My name is Dylan Gardner, my pronouns are they, them, uh, and I'm a PhD candidate in chemistry in Texas Tech. My guest today is the always lovely Tori Lane. Uh, She's a local comedian and painter. So, Tori. Hi, Dylan. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Pretty good, yeah. Uh, Had a lot of fun. I, I, I quickly... Honestly, I researched all of this today because I really wanted to tell this story. So awesome! Uh, awesome. I'm really excited um, to share it. So well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I appreciate it. You've been on my list. I I have a, a running list of people I want to have on, and you have been on it. I made the list. <laughs> what do you know about leprosy? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the only thing I know about leprosy is what I've heard biblically from when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think one of the comedians was talking about petting either an armadillo or something. Mm-hmm. You could get leprosy. Yeah. One of the comedians is talking about that. So. Yeah, that is actually a real theory. They're not, I don't think they've proved it, but they do think that like, so like in the United States, uh, it's very rare for people to catch, catch the disease. Okay. Um, and they think that. They think that people are getting it maybe from handling armadillos. Wow. <laughs> like, there's only a few hundred cases a year, and, like, they think that, most, <laughs> like, the, the starting vector is an armadillo. <laughs> that, that's, that would be a really uh, cute way to uh, get leprosy. You're like, I was just petting an armadillo, you know? <laughs> I know. I was talking to Ryan about that, and he's, he's like, I wouldn't pet a wild armadillo, okay? I would only <laughs> pet a tame armadillo. And I'm like, okay, you telling me an armadillo walks up to you, shows you his belly. You're not going to pet that armadillo? That's, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, I personally wouldn't. I would say, oh, how cute from afar. But yeah, no. Well, <laughs> I I probably wouldn't touch it either. I'm I'm not gonna lie. I think they're a little creepy. Um, slightly, <laughs> slightly. <laughs> but yeah, so leprosy is also known as Hansen's disease. Um, a lot of people are trying to rename it Hansen's disease for stigma reasons because it is one of the most stigmatized diseases in all of human history. Right. Um, written accounts of leprosy date back thousands of years. Um, various skin diseases kind of get lumped into leprosy when you're talking about ancient texts. The oldest um, text that references it is Atharva Veda, which is from 600 BC. So, like, it's an ancient disease. Um, many, there's another ancient Indian text, um, from 200 BC that actually prohibited the contact with those infected with people that are not infected like so even in ancient times like this disease was already stigmatized to where Uh people could not uh, intermingle with people that have and again it's not just um hansen's disease it again it's lumped in together with a lot of other skin diseases right so like you know people will call call you know anybody with a sore sores on their body for any reason usually say they have leprosy because it all gets lumped together wow Um, you got ringworm and so you have to go get they just had like eczema and they're right. like, no, you're a yeah, liar. Yeah, yeah. That's um, so mean. That's so mean. Yeah, it's, 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 and it, and it comes into the modern day too, and we'll talk about that too. But, um, you know, and now modern day, like, it's one of the most ancient slurs as well. So, like, you know, again, in the Bible, in these um, old texts, they call people lepers. Right. Right. And so that's, that's a slur. I mean... <laughs> Right, because so, you're sure. sti- it's it's creating a stigma against people, you know, and and I think a lot of people 
don't really think of it anymore because you don't know people with Hansen's disease, right? Like, no, Not most people... Not that I know of. Right, like, most people... And now it's curable. So, um, you know, you get it... Do you know it. the cure? So the cure is antibiotics. Oh, okay. So it's like, um, I don't remember exactly what the antibiotics are, but it's like three antibiotics that you take together. Okay. And that gets rid of the disease. Okay. So, um... So you're not going to die if you get leprosy these days. No. And in fact, what we're going to talk about today is actually the woman who helped make the first treatment for leprosy. So, which is why we're talking about it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I just wanted to, you know, give more context to like why this was such a big deal. And because to, um, so we're going to talk about Alice Ball and Alice Ball's, um, unfortunately her life was really short. And so I want to talk about like all these things that funnel down into her life and then her big discovery that now affect affected so many people after right so hansen's disease so i'm going to kind of interchange between hansen's disease and leprosy because i think people because there's also like world leprosy day so i think people have heard of leprosy more than hansen's disease but like sure uh yeah or a person with leprosy or a person with hansen's disease um is what i'm going to try to go for it's actually really hard to contract really hard to contract. Um, 95% of people who like have the bacteria that causes it, um, they never develop the symptoms of the disease because they're immune. You're essentially immune to it. So like you might have exposure, you might have, you know, all these things, but 95% of people will never contract it, even if they're exposed. Right. And so the spread is usually through cough or contact with like fluid of like the nose and saliva. So that's how it's usually spread. Leprosy does not spread during pregnancy. So if you have a child you're not passing it on to your children. Oh, okay. Um, and it's not it's not through sexual contact, so it's not an STI, STI. Though, like, again, because stigma, everything gets lumped together, syphilis actually got lumped in with leprosy. Really? Yeah, and so, like, that only added to the stigma, right? So you're... I'd rather have leprosy than syphilis. Well, syphilis is also curable now, too, so, like... Still, I'd yeah. rather have leprosy than, than syphilis, but... Yeah. But Uh, I'm I'm pretty ignorant, so. But yeah, I mean, so syphilis, I mean, again, it used to be a really bad disease, you know, um, but now, again, antibiotics have cured it. So if you get it, you can be cured of it. It's not, if you get it, you should just go to the doctor, they'll give you medicine, and it goes away. Like, you know, I don't know. Like, um, I mean, it did kill Al Capone. Did it? Yeah. Hitler had it, too. Hitler was before... Probably before they had access to antibiotics, though. Right, but it, I don't know. Kinda, Al, when did Al Capone die? I don't know when Al Capone died. I think I Al know. Capone was the twenties or thirties. Then I, there was no um, antibiotics then either. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, we just did the penicillin episode. <laughs> I don't listen. You are very smart. <laughs> like, I can remember like four songs and three jokes at any given moment. That's about the extent of my memory. You're doing better than me, Selena. Because you had two songs. N- Nothing. <laughs> maybe half a song, maybe a chorus. Well, you're old. <laughs> Thanks. Just kidding. Respect your elders. <laughs> yes, uh, Dylan, you are incredibly intelligent. So, well, teach you. me more about H- Hansen's disease. Yeah. See, I remembered that. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, so really, I'm just trying to say that, like, a lot of the time, it's really not as big as a deal, especially in the modern time anymore. So, but the stigma has still came around. So in the 1980s, there were 5.2 million cases globally. um, And we now have it down to 0.2 million a year. Um, And that was in 2020. Most new cases occur in 14 countries. um, And India accounts for half of that. Okay. So, and what happens is there's populations of people who are living in poverty that don't have access to education and the medications that are needed to cure it. Right. And so that stigma still hangs around. And so if they catch it, they self isolate. Right. And then they don't go get help. So, um, that sucks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, um, there's actually a, uh, so it's classified as a neglected tropical disease. So these areas tend to be in the tropics. Um, and there was a World Leprosy Day started in 1954 to draw awareness to those affected by the disease. Many parts of the world, especially areas of high poverty, people just don't know it's curable. So they don't know to seek treatment is, is been the biggest issue. Like They just don't know to go tr- get treatment. And the World Health Organization gives away the medications to treat the disease for free. Oh. So if you go get treatment, you, you will get the medication, it's free, 
um, and you can be cured. So, How would you know that you had it? Honestly, I didn't even look at the symptoms. <laughs> so let's look. Sorry, because I'm like, if it's lumped with a ton of different diseases, I, I, like, kind of like syphilis, how would you know if you had that, too? Mm -hmm. Well, so are... I know part of the problem with um, Hansen's disease is there's a really long incubation period. So, like, some people get it, and within a year, they'll have symptoms. And sometimes it's 20 years before they get symptoms. Like, oh, it's wow. a long incubation period. Um Wow. So, so the symptoms are discolored patches of skin, usually flat. Um, they may be numb, so it might go, cause numbness, and um, it's usually lighter than the skin around it. You can get growths or nodules on the skin. Um, your skin is thick, stiff, or dry. Um, you can get painless ulcers on the soles of your feet, painless swelling or lumps on the face or earlobes, and you get loss of eyebrows or eyelashes. Oh, wow. Um, and then, yeah, numbness, muscle weakness, uh, and eye problems. So it can also lead to blindness. So Wow. So someone could literally be walking around with Hansen's disease or, or leprosy mm -hmm. and not even know it. Like Yeah. Okay. And again, a lot of people have the bacteria and never have this, will never have the symptoms. Wow. Mm -hmm. So do you know... The prevalence of cases in in the United States. There are about two hundred cases a year. Okay, it's so, really rare so in the United like States. Tiny, tiny. Yeah, because again, it's not very contagious, right? right? So, unless you're messing with an armadillo, <laughs> you're not gonna get it. Well, that's. I would say that that's a stigma that I've heard about leprosy in general. Like, from church, is that it was highly contagious. Yeah. So that's interesting that it's just. That's just really not, not true. Right, right. Yeah. It's funny mm -hmm. how that happens. Mm -hmm. Did I just cuss a lot? No. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and that, that idea of it being highly contagious has been, I mean, the cause of a lot of issues. So there were actually, um, there were many terms for them, settlements, asylums, sanatoriums, to isolate people with leprosy and their families from the general public. You That's know. sad. Yeah, so there were multiple in the United States, um, and the one that's of note for this story is the one in Hawaii, so it was on uh, Kalapapa, <laughs> I practiced this, Kalapapa Peninsula, a lush green serene stretch of land that's on the island of Molokai um, in Hawaii. So records suggest at least 8,000 individuals were forcibly removed from their families and relocated to that island over the century that it was opening open um so oh. it was started in the 1860s and it closed it closed in 1969 wow um and almost all of the people that were brought there were native hawaiians wow and there are still people who live there in fact actually that are from that time period that just never left because that's their home right so right. you can find news articles and i i have them as part of my sources of people talking about like the treatment that they received about like one woman was ex was talking about how she was um taken from her mom and she didn't even get to say goodbye to her mom like she had to just like wave goodbye as the ship was taking her away wow it's ridiculous yeah now at these facilities they did get treatment but the only treatment available was um this oil called the chalmugra oil um which is a form it's from a seeds from a tree that's native to the Indian subcontinent. Um, and that's been used medicinally from like as early as 1300. So it's been around for a really long time. But the treatment was really not very effective because every method of like applying this oil had an issue. Like it was really sticky, so you couldn't really put it on your skin. And so really what ended up happening was people would get it injected underneath the skin. But it's not very soluble and so you would just get these little blisters forming um and people said that in you know it formed in rows and made it look as if the patient's skin had been replaced by bubble wrap wow yeah what the oh and i i would think that would be really painful oh yeah like really painful that's mm -hmm. i'm trying not to cuss because there's lots of cuss words that want to come out of my mouth right now yeah. about that that's that's like a 
that's torturous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, it, it, it wasn't effective. It, it, it just, well, I mean, it was effective in that it did help, but it wasn't effective because it was just, you had to keep taking it. And again, it was painful. I mean, it just, mm-hmm. and so people were kind of subjected to this for years um, and expected essentially to be isolated, getting these treatments, never be able to go home, right? Um, it was really kind of a nightmare. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Harry T. Holman, he was the acting director of the leprosy clinic in uh, Kalahi, um, which is the initial checkoff point before people were relocated to the island. He actually wanted to research better treatments for leprosy. I, he genuinely wanted to make sure, have something better than just this oil that you inject, you know, right. like, right. um, and so he is, he is not the villain of our story today. And he actually came across a master's thesis written by Alice Ball. So we were, this is the person that I really wanted to talk about today. Um, she was working at the University of Hawaii. When she went there, it was called the College of Hawaii, but it's now the University of Hawaii. So it's the same organization. Okay. Um, so she actually studied the chemical makeup of a kava plant, which the kava plant has a lot of medical uses as well. And so Dr. Holman approached her to study the oil um, and its chemical properties to see if there was a way to make it a better medicine, right? Right. Because, um, like, it did have properties that worked, but, like, it was just very unpleasant to administer. Sounds awful. Yeah. So I'm just going to back up a bit and tell you about Alice Ball first, and then we'll get back into um, her research and what she did. Um, and what she did was really honestly very simple, but, like, the effect it had was just amazing. So, she was born on July 24th in 1892 in Seattle, Washington, to James Presley Ball Jr., who was an attorney, and his wife, Laura. Um, she was the third of four children, with two older brothers, William and Robert, and a younger sister, Addie. The family um, and James Presley Ball Sr., who was, like, Alice's grandfather, right? Okay. They all moved to Hawaii in 1902, yeah, they moved to 1902. Um, they lived there for two years, um, and then um, Mr. Ball Sr. died in Honolulu uh, two years later, and so the family returned to Seattle. And so Alice ends up graduating from Seattle High School in, uh, I believe in that same year, in 1904? Maybe. I don't know when she graduated high school. But she attended the University of Washington and received two degrees. Um, pharmaceutical chemistry in 1912 and a bachelor's of science in 1914. Wow. And it's kind of hard to say in this time period, like who is like the first woman to get these degrees. So, but she was among the first women to be earning degrees in the sciences, um, in the United States. So like there are women who are Americans and a lot of them went overseas to like the university of Zurich to get degrees. And Ah. so like, but it's it's been harder because I was trying to determine like who who got the degree on American soil like from America like from an American university right, um, right and that seems to be about the turn of the century is when a lot of women were doing it so she's like one of the first women that that's are awesome. attending these universities and, and it's a science yes and a science and she's a black woman oh even better yeah that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. She's also... um, Go, Alice. She published a 10-page paper with her pharmacy instructor, Williams Den, in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. And publishing any article, any scientific article, was really uncommon for any woman. And so she very well may have been um, one of the first black women to publish in the journal. Again, I can't it's hard to find, like, who is actually the first, but, like, she is one of the first people. She is pioneering this in a lot of ways. Um, That's a good term for that. Mm-hmm. And she, through this, she was offered two scholarships to two different master's programs, one at the University of California, Berkeley, and the other one was at um, the College of Hawaii, so the now University of Hawaii. And she decided to go to the University of Hawaii. She was there. She's yeah, been there. She grew up there a little bit. Yeah, so... Um, Yeah, I I could not find exactly why she chose Hawaii, but um, that is where she ended up. So then that's where she was studying the kava plant for her master's thesis. And so then we're reaching back around to, you know, Dr. Um, Holman, who is now finding her paper about the kava plant. 
you know, he wanted an assistant to research treatments of leprosy. So that's, that's where he comes in. So at the age of 23, Ball develops a technique to make the oil injectable and absorbable by the body. So now you can just inject it, right? And it's right. absorbed and like, it's just like any other shot that you would get at a doctor. Right? Right. right. You know, much more, much better and much more effective, right? So your body's actually absorbing it. It, and it was much more effective. Could I ask you a question? Yeah. So before when they would inject and it would be, it's just oil under your skin. Mm -hmm. Did that happen a lot with other medicines for other diseases? Or was this just happened to be because of, of leprosy that it had some qualities that helped mm -hmm. that they just tried it basically without, yeah. or yeah. was that kind of common back then? To, I would say it's not common. Okay. Because, so you have to think about it this way too, like any medicine has, like, you know, because in the turn of the century, like medicine was still pretty new. Sure. Right? That makes um, sense. You know, it's starting to get better. It is like the 1914, but like there's still no antibiotics, you know, surgeries and still hard to do. Um, anesthetics are rare and not super effective. So like what we think of medicine now did not, still did not really exist. Like it was in its initial forms, you know? And so any medication that you were going to give a patient had to, they had to be willing to take it or be forced to take it, right? Ah, uh, okay. So they are being forced to take this medication. Right. Right. And so- right. Any other patient with maybe a disease with less stigma would not be subjected to such a painful treatment. Gotcha. Right, and there are there were definitely other cases of painful treatments and things like that, but like you have to keep in mind of like stigma versus like the consent of the patient because you can't usually strap someone down and give force them to take a medication, right? <laughs> no. Except if they have a very stigmatized disease that then they are being institutionalized and forced to take it. Right, right. Does that make sense? So well, like, yeah, because patients' rights weren't a thing. Exactly. Not even close. Yeah. So I don't think people would even have taken this because it's so painful if they were not forced. No. Right. Or, you know, I think a lot of people took it, like, if they were taking it on their own terms, they were taking it topically. They were putting it on their, on the skin. They were not putting it in, they were in not injecting skin. it. Right. Because, like, this, the oil has been used for centuries, like, it was, like, part of traditional medicine in a lot of areas. Right. And I right. really doubt they were injecting it, right? So they were probably, it was probably a topical for a really long time. And then they were like, oh, well, it's more effective if you inject it. And then they had people that could not say no to those injections. Wow. Yeah. That's just, history's astounding. Yeah. So, but that's part of what makes um, Alice Ball's discovery so amazing. So what she did is she took the oil, and the oil was... Um, a, carb, a form of a, of a compound called a carboxylic acid. So you have a carboxylic acid. You can take an alcohol, specifically ethanol in this case, and if you react them together, you get what's called an ethyl ester. Ethyl esters are a lot more soluble. Okay. And, like, this reaction, very easy to do. Incredibly easy to do. Very simple. And because ethyl esters are so much more soluble in water, you can, again, give those regular injections. They're a lot less painful. However, Alice was unable to publish her findings before her untimely death. Oh. So Ball died on Alice. December 31st of 1916 at the age of 24. Golly. Like just, she, she made this discovery. And then, so um, there's a couple of, it's not entirely clear how she died. So, but um, she became ill during her research. She went back to Seattle a few months before her death. She tried to go back to Honolulu, but she was just too sick. So she went back to Seattle. But they knew she was sick? Or she knew she was sick, I guess? Yeah, so she knew she, she was sick for a few months. She died at 23, you said, or 24? 24. 24. Mm -hmm. She didn't even make the 27 Club, man. Yeah. But she contributed, I guess, so much to science. So like, much. That's incredible. It makes me feel like I haven't done anything with my life. Oh, you. I'm the, I'm the old <laughs> fart here. Wow. Yeah. 24 years old and mm -hmm. discovered that. That's astounding. Yeah. Um, In a good way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, like, it was, she lived such a short life, but again, like, the change she made, so like, after, so after her death, right, she, um, which, I, okay, 
<laughs> I should say how she died first. So they think, the theory currently is that she had um, been exposed to chlorine while teaching in the laboratory. Um, it was reported that she was giving a demonstration on how to properly use a gas mask because um, it was World War One. So like they were, she was trying to demonstrate how to use a gas mask and in the process was expo exposed to chlorine. But the exact cause of her death is unknown. So her original death certificate said that she died of tuberculosis. So, hmm. again, I'm not sure. It was a little weird, but also, you know, it took her a few months to die. So, and my understand, I don't know how common that is for chlorine exposure. Because usually with chlorine exposures that I've heard of, you usually die pretty quickly. Because you're, okay. like, asphyxiating on it. Right? And so, like, basically the chlorine gas gets in your lungs. Um, and when it hits your mucous membranes and, like, your, in the water in your body, it creates hydrochloric acid. And so it's burning your nostrils, your throat, your lungs. Ugh, so What a horrible way to die. It, yeah. Um, people have described it as drowning on dry land. Like, it's, it's, it's a bad way to go. Yeah, this is a really light episode. I feel like I should warn people. Uh, I'm sorry. Wow. But it's, it's, so, it's so important. She did such a good thing. I just want to share her story. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad you're sharing her story. I think, especially, like around the the subject of stigma and stuff like that and someone that was probably stigmatized themselves for being a black woman mm -hmm. and she overcame that by going to university by discovering something that totally healed people and then died at 24 that's an amazing human so. mm -hmm. absolutely um so after her death um, another person um, actually took over her work. His name was Arthur L. Dean. He took it to further like trials, and in 1919, a college uh, chemistry laboratory was um, producing qu large quantities of the injectable medication. And so uh, Arthur L. Dean, he was a chemist. He was Ball's graduate study advisor, the dean of the college, and later president of the university. And as her advisor, he was privy to all of the details of the process that she developed. Right? So he's the one who kind of, you know, she discovered it. He, he knew about her discovery and he continued it after she died. But her name is not mentioned anywhere when he publishes the work. Mm. Nowhere. Uh, Why do people do that? Why yeah. do people do that? In fact, he named it the Dean Method. He named it after himself. What a bad word. <laughs> <laughs> what a really bad word. Yeah. Dirty Dean. <laughs> Dirty Dean. <laughs> I can't cuss as we got it, you know. Alliterations work a little bit. Alliterations do work. That is a good that's a good one. But yeah, so he did, you know, basically help mass produce the the medicine. Um but yeah, did not publish her, did not give her wow. any credit, didn't mention her name, nothing. Not a not a word. How and, often do you think that happens in in science? especially even in modern day science like how often do you think that happens i think in modern day it's it's becoming rarer okay because we do have like ethics committees and these kinds of things you know sure but... um yeah i mean it's it depends like so it's, i would say that it doesn't happen as much but like also we know people who like can't you know, we talk to our scientists ourselves like we know like because he was her advisor Right. And as, right. so I have an advisor for my graduate research as well. Right. And your right. advisor in a lot of ways has a lot of power over your career and your trajectories. So if I did something and what a lot of groups do is basically they have multiple graduate students working on the same project, especially if you're in a big lab. That's pretty common. Okay. Usually both students will get their names on the paper in the end. But whoever does like discovers it first, their name goes first, right? So if, if everything's ethical, that's usually how it works. Right. But your professor gets all, you know, your advisor, your professor kind of gets all the say in that. So I've known professors who, if one student discovers it first, their name goes on the paper. Anybody else working on it, they don't get their name on the paper. Wow. So it, it, it really depends. But then people talk, right? And so then it's like, you know, everyone knows that this has happened. And so what... And it's kind of hard because, like, these are usually end years from retirement or five right. years from retirement or four years from retirement. Right. Yeah. So, 
it's complicated, but I would say it doesn't happen near as much because, especially with younger faculty, first of all, more fa- more and more faculty are women. Chemistry is, like, chemistry for the longest time was very uh, white male-led, and we are getting a lot more gender diversity. Like, if you go to a chemistry meeting now, it's it's half and half. Really? It, about, yeah, especially, and, like, if you look at the age demographics, though, like, you know, the younger ones are more female, right? So as you get older, the gender diversity goes away. Sure. Um, and that, that doesn't sense. always trickle into who is getting academic jobs. Like, so there's issues of like, who actually gets hired to be faculty, right? Right. So that still tends to be a lot of white men, but like, that's also getting better because people are like, hey, <laughs> you know, because like, in my own department, like, if you look at the people hired, like, my advisor is probably the oldest women, but th- woman, but there's two. Two others in organic, anyway. It's like we're in divisions. We're in the organic chemistry division. Um, There's three women faculty in the organic division. Um, There's my advisor, who's, again, probably the oldest, and the two younger ones are, like, fairly new faculty. So my professor is an associate. Assistant is the youngest, and then associate. So she's not a full professor yet, but she's, you know, middle... Of of her career track. And then the two younger ones, like, one just got tenure. So she's... I don't know if she got promoted to, because like you start off as an assistant professor without tenure, then okay. you get tenure, and then you can be promoted. And that would be the associate. And that's professor. associate. Okay. So she's definitely gotten tenure, and she probably got promoted. So she might, but she just got promoted like last year, and then um, the youngest one was just hired, and so she's like fresh out of her postdoc, oh, and she's okay. an assistant professor. So, um, but we have three women out of six seven there's seven organic faculty so like and again the young hire the new hires are are the women you know so like it's getting better and then it also depends a lot on what university you're at you know because some universities are notorious for being really really bad (laughs) oh i bet so and again we all cool that texas (laughs) it's in texas and Mm -hmm. it's half and half that's pretty cool yeah. Um, oh, I'm happy to hear that. I would imagine it also depends a lot on the specific industry because chemists don't always just work at a university. Right. Um, Good point. My, my high school science teacher, she taught biology and chemistry. She was uh, she used to work in the oil field. Oh, yeah. And it's because oh, the oil wow. field is majority men. She had to... Um, she had to quit. Like, she basically had to... What is it called? Like, when you quit, but you're not just, like, quitting... She resigned. Resigned. Yes. Mm, yeah. She had to resign because she was a distraction in the workplace. Oh wow. Because men what couldn't. Year? I mean, it was probably. I would think probably the nineties. I don't know when she started teaching, but maybe the nineties, right. uh, early two thousands, that she had to become a teacher instead because she just for her to be around all those men in the oil field all the time. It was. I bet that was nuts. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but she also said it like, like she was bragging because she was really hot. Oh, <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> it is true, but um, yeah, but I, I just would imagine that's part of it too. Is just like the specific industry, the things oh, yeah. that we all have to face, anyways. Just being women in the world. Yeah, um, you're definitely right. I mean, oil is really hard to get into as a woman. Yeah, you know, chemist, any any position in the oil industry is hard to get as a woman, and it's hard to be in. Yeah, because like you might get hired. But, like, the work environment's awful. Right. right. And that's part of part of it, too, because there's plenty of universities that they, they hire women. Do they get, do they stay? Right. Do they get tenure? Right? Or do they leave? Right. Because right. Uh, I know there's a lot of professors who are, like, I've heard people talk, and they're like, I want to leave this, this, you know, again, I'm in the academics world, so, but, you know, right. I want to leave this university. It's awful. Sure. Like, you know, like, there's universities out there that do not have maternal leave policy. Like, obviously, you're, like, required really? to like you're required to give those t- 12 weeks of unpaid leave by the by federal law right but the university has no system in place to like cover the class or like you know if what yeah and so like they'll have a female faculty become pregnant and then they'll be like what are we gonna do wow <laughs> wow yeah smart of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they're like why why do we need the policy <laughs> Well, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's it's pretty crazy. Go Alice. In this time period, when Alice was going to school too, I know 
when Berkeley first started letting women in, which I think is about this time period, they would put a screen between the women and the men in the classrooms. <laughs> really? I think, I think so. that's what I my, mean, yeah. It sounds like something they'd do back then. <laughs> but yeah, they'd, they'd have a screen just so they couldn't see each other. <laughs> that was very effective. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so, I mean, Alice was going, like, a pioneer, like I said, um, you know, and, and so, yeah, her advisor really took kind of advantage of this, you know, she, she'd passed away, she can't even stand up for herself. Right, He right. tries to erase her. How did, how did it not happen that way? How are mm-hmm. we able to know about her? So, the first thing that happens, Ball's colleague, uh, Holman... Um, the one who originally hired her to even look into this, right, Dr. Oh. Harry Holman, um, he actually attempted to make a correction on um, Dean's publication. So, like, Dean publishes it. He right. says he calls it the Dean method and all this stuff, you know. Dirty um, Dean. <laughs> he published a paper. So, Holman, Holman published a paper in 1922 um, giving credit to Ball. So, he he's That's like, no. Awesome. Um so he called, you know, he, the injectable form of the oil, he's the one who actually calls it the ball method. So it's named after her now. Or, well, it's not named after her, like, in the timeline. But, like, he, he's like, no, this is ball's method. She came up with this. Um, and I think Dean tried to, like, change it up just a little bit. Right. And, and be like, oh, I improved it. But, right. like, Holman basically discusses the techniques developed and the reports um, and and says that, like, although Dean had contended made advancements, I put that in quote, he made advancements to the technique. When Holman compares Dean's and Ball's technique in the article, um, this is is word for word what he says. I cannot see that there is any improvement whatsoever to the original technique as worked out by Miss Ball. The original method will allow any physician in any asylum for um, people with leprosy, that's not what he uses, but I'm going to use that, (laughs) in the world. With a little study uh, to isolate and use the ethyl esters of the uh, Chalmorgra fatty acids in treating his cases. While the complicated distillation in vacu- vacuo will require very delicate but not always attainable apparatus. So basically, he's saying, I cannot see any difference. There's no improvement. Because there probably wasn't. <laughs> There's no difference, essentially. Um, he just stole it. Yeah. He just stole it and didn't yeah. give her it credit. As own. He 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 stole a dead woman's work. So you would definitely like if if she had been Taylor Swift, he would have been ruined. <laughs> <laughs> uh, into the ground. You can't right. even say like the phrase uh, "this sick beat." You can't say that. Are I'm gonna have to believe that. I'm gonna have to believe that because Taylor Swift owns that phrase. Really. Yeah, Taylor, anything, like, in all of her songs, she almost, I think she almost owns the year 1989, because that's the year that she was born, and that's the name of her, one of her albums. Right, right. So she, at least, she tried to put a copyright on it. She owns um, the phrase, Shake It Off. Um, She owns the phrase, in that whole song, there's, like, a bunch of things that she says, and she owns every one of those phrases. That's so weird that you can own shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so weird. Anyway. Oh, Taylor. Taylor Swift moment. Okay, sorry. Get over, yourself. Get over yourself, girl. You're a really good songwriter, but damn. Yeah. Prolific. Oh, she's super prolific. Mm-hmm. But don't don't be a douche about it. Right. Not everything is about you, bitch. Not, yeah. I mean, lady. I mean. <laughs> Young lady. You gotta bleep that, too. Yeah. You can't. Oh, you, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've done good not cussing. At the end, I'm going to cuss a whole lot. <laughs> We're going to turn fun. off the mic and you're going to be like, ah! <laughs> yeah, so, you know, like, how did this happen? So, you know, Holman publishes that, but it's not till 75 years later that Alice Ball was, like, rediscovered. And she was rediscovered thanks what? to the work of University of Hawaii historians, including uh, Catherine Takara and Stanley Ali. And because of their work, the University of Hawaii finally honored Ball in 2000. What? Um, by de- dedicating a plaque to her at the school's only um, uh, Chalmugra tree, which is behind Bachman Hall, which if you're from University of Hawaii, you know where that is. I don't know where that is. But University of Hawaii students, though, have 
have been questioning whether there should be more done to resolve the wrongful actions of the former president. So he ends up becoming president of the college, right? Oh, Dean does. Dirty so, Dean. To resolve the wrongful actions of the formal former Ugh. president, Dean, including proposals to rename Dean Hall. So there's Dean Hall at University of Hawaii after Ball instead. So it'd be Ball Hall, which right. alliteration. Let's go. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that has not been done, but as, as my understanding, there are people are there are people out there advocating for that. So He's that, a stinker. Mm-hmm. Also, in 2000, the former uh, lieutenant governor of Hawaii, uh, Maisie Hirono, declared February 29th Alice Ball Day, which is now celebrated. I was about to say leap year. It's yeah, it's celebrated every four years. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, but great, great job stamping that date. Um. So, but. Okay, and then this year, in February 28, 2022, um, the Hawaii Governor David um, Ige uh, signed a proclamation declaring February 28th <laughs> Alice Augusta Ball Day. <laughs> so Hawaii now celebrates it every year. <laughs> wow. But yeah, and there was a special rec- recognition ceremony at the University of Hawaii, and um, the ceremony took place next to Bachman Hall in the shade of the Chalmorga tree that was planted in Ball's honor. Um, a bronze plaque is still there in her memory. Some other honors that she got. So in 2007, the University Board of Regents honored Ball with the Medal of Distinction, which is the school's highest honor. Oh, so that's cool. Uh, March 2016, Hawaii Magazine placed Ball on its list of most influential women in Hawaiian history. And then in 2019, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine added her name to the... The Frige? I don't know how to say that. F-R-I-E-Z-E, atop its main building. So, like, on top of its main building, there's, like, an area um, that has um, the names of people like Florence Nightingale and Marie Curie um, in recognition to their contributions in science and global health research. So, Alice Ball is up there, um, honored on their building as well. That's cool. Um, Oh, and they made a a short film about the Ball Method in February 2020 at the Pan-African Film Festival. Oh, and the last one I have. I'm sorry, I have one more. Because, <laughs> like, just in the last few years, they, they, they've done a lot of things to start honoring her. Sure. Um, and so in, in 2020, a satellite got named after her. Yeah, and so it's the Nusat 9 or Al- or Alice. So they, call, they, like, name her Alice. Like, the satellite's Aww. name is Alice. So I don't know if you know about scientists, but they like to name inanimate objects a lot. So. Sure. But uh, the satellite is named after Alice Ball, um, and that was launched into space. So... Yeah, those are, so she's starting to get more recognition. Um, The American Chemical Society has her on their list of um, influential black chemists. Um, So she, I'm really glad that she's starting to get the recognition she deserves. I mean, again, like Dean tried to erase her. Like, that's why I was so, so, I felt like the story needed to be told. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, so after she developed her, her synthesis, right? All those people that were getting being held, within a few months, a few years, they were able to be released because the medication helped that much. Wow. You know, like, because now, you know, they, it basically helped. It didn't cure the disease, but it helped stop the progression. So until we had antibiotics, they were not cured, right? right. So if they stopped taking the medicine, it would come back. But it slowed the progression of the disease enough that people could leave. They wow. could go live wherever they wanted. Do you think this, so, so the stigma went way down after that if they were allowed to leave right i don't think the stigma has really gone anywhere it's just they they weren't they weren't contagious you know again because i mean they were never really very contagious to begin with right i guess that's what i'm i guess that's what i mean is since they weren't they kind of discovered that they weren't as contagious Mm -hmm. did the stigma kind of go down allowing them to leave kind of i think it was just people were like well we have a real treatment now, so you can leave. Okay. I think is the essential idea. Because, like, so the facility, again, wasn't closed till 1969. Oh, wow. So, like, this was discovered in 1922. Right, right. And people were allowed to start leaving. But, like, the facility itself was still open till 1969. So I would not say that the stigma goes went away. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, again, and depending on what areas of the world you're in, it's still very stigmatized you know and again here we you know when you go to church people will talk about people with leprosy because it's mentioned in the new testament jesus heals people with leprosy right and that's considered a miracle right 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 
but and like, it's not that much of a miracle. We we can treat it now. You know, like and at, at the time it would be a miracle, right? I mean, there sure. was no treatment, but you know, I think the stigma is still there. Like it's still thought of as this horrible, awful disease. Like you would oh, never. Yeah. Like if you were to ask somebody, oh, what do you think of leprosy? They'd be like, oh, isn't that an awful disease that people got back in the day or whatever? You know, like that's what I thought before we had this podcast exactly so like i think the stigma is still there it's just we at least have ways to cure it sure so we just don't see people with the disease anymore right but like if you saw someone walking around with it i think they would still be equally stigmatized but i think for these like specific individuals that were released they could probably go back to having uh like a normal almost normal life like they would still have to get treatment continuous treatment since they weren't technically cured right Mm -hmm. but they also wouldn't necessarily have to tell people that I they had leprosy. leprosy. Right, right. So in that way, they would kind of lose the stigma, yeah. I think is what. Okay. Um, yeah. But if they told people, they would still probably be treated differently. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's why a lot of people still live there. Like I said, like people still live in this area um, because of how they were treated. Like they can't imagine leaving now because they saw how the world treated them. That, and, and this is their home. Right. This is where they got to live normal lives, because as long as they stayed there, they could go to the store, they could go to school. Everyone was in this stigmatized community together. Right. 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 And so that's why a lot of people still live there. And they're now in their 70s and to 90s, the patients that that are still there, um, even though they don't they don't have it anymore. Right. But like they they just don't want to leave because they they were treated so badly. Wow. Damn. Yeah. I just don't have any words for that. That's. I'm glad Alice found a cure. Mm-hmm. But Dirty Dean. Yeah, Dirty Dean tried to try to erase her, and that, that's again. Well, it ca- just makes me so mad. Well, yeah, I think that happens quite a bit, though. Like I, I, I'm a huge fan of Tesla. Mm-hmm. Not. I'm talking about like. Like Nikola Tesla. Like Nikola Tesla. Yeah. 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 So. I was listening to just a documentary about how Edison tried to erase him, and Edison was mm-hmm. a mother bad word, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, so I like, I run sound sometimes, mm-hmm. and so the cords that you use to plug in are called Edison cords, and I call them Teslas, because I think Edison is kind of a dirty Dean. He tried he to, is. and... In um, a lot of ways, because a lot of Edison's you know, inventions were from other people that he hired, he yeah. slapped his name on it. Well, he told Tesla, I'll give you $50,000 mm-hmm. if you can make... It was a ton of, of, of like, dead patented stuff that he had. He's like, hey, if you can make these actually work, I'll mm-hmm. give you fifty grand." And Tesla did it. And he didn't pay him. Oh. He was like, you don't understand American humor. And I was like... American humor. Yeah, that, yeah. That was, I was like, are you kidding me? So I think that happens, uh, I think jealousy happens quite a bit mm-hmm. with that is like, probably. That is like a distinctly American thing is like, oh, I'm going to pay you or I'm going to give you credit for this thing that you're going to give to me. Yeah. You know, for free. And then we're just like, psych, just kidding. Yeah. We're it's, not going to help you. Yeah. That's the American way. It's, it's correct. Honestly, stealing and taking credit for other people's work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, or it's opportunism at its worst. But yeah, I'd say that. Not Yeah. It's just. Yeah. Gross. Um, yeah, and it, there's a particular irk I have with um, Elon Musk naming his car Tesla. Oh, <laughs> oh, does that? Oh, <laughs> that makes I mean, me want to say bad words. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> like, oh. Uh. Well, I mean, you don't just stealing people's ideas aren't. It's just not a good thing. Yeah. And I don't understand why people do that. And. I think it's been going on forever, but... It's ego. And, you know, yeah, Vanilla Ice. I know. Millie Vanilli. Yeah. So. There's, there's a lot of that in, like, kind of any field, but, mm-hmm. but especially science, though. Something... Carlos Mencia. Oh, what's that Carlos one? Mencia, is a, he's a comedian, for people who don't right. know, he's a comedian who would um, go to... He would go to, like, open mics, or he would go to showcases with much smaller comedians, like, smaller names that didn't have a big following. And he would basically steal their material. And since he was this big comedian, Carlos Mencia, everybody knew who he was. Right. He got credit for all of it. Wow. But he stole material from countless people. God. Why do people do that? I've heard, and I used to be such an Amy Schumer fan, you know, like, and I, you know, and then I 
read some stuff about her stealing jokes. Like, right. I mean, I think the same way that you're talking. I think about. specifically with Amy because she kind of got. She honestly got famous too quickly. She didn't really sure. have enough time. She didn't have enough material. No, she didn't have enough material for an hour. So, she. I guess she just panicked and stole, which is still not right. Yeah, and I, I mean, but I don't want to accuse somebody. I just. It, it I mean, there's a lot of evidence heart. that she's. I know, and I just that she stole. It does. It does. I'm it like, is very it. unfortunate. Um, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it's intellectual property. It is. Taylor Swift is the only one doing it correctly. Honestly, she's the only one that's really protecting. <laughs> she is protecting her legacy. She is protecting her legacy. She's protecting all of her intellectual property, and it should and be. I, we should be able to all do that. Not saying like we need to own catchphrases or anything but there should be a way for all of us to be able to protect our intellectual property that doesn't require having to file copyrights like every time you write a new joke or a new song or isn't that crazy mm-hmm. yeah isn't that not, like if i were you you write a lot of you write a lot of jokes yeah Lena. but i record like you're, you're um super prolific and so you would you need to do I, at least I a poor tweet, man's copyright i tweet everything i text myself the joke so I have the time on it, and then yeah, I record I almost every set. So I have, I mean, it's not like a, it's not legal, but if somebody did do one of my jokes, I could point back and be like, hey, I did this joke here, and it's time stamped in my text messages. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, you know, I tweeted it on this date. Sure. So I have evidence of, like, when I had stuff, you know. That's good. I came good. up with things. Yeah. That's, I mean, I record, too. It, like, not just, I mean, I'm a musician, so I used to do that. I don't really play music anymore, but I did that with comedy too, yeah. like to practice, but I still have a timestamp. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what I want to do with this podcast is I probably need to actually copyright it and whatnot. At least like the cowboy chemistry. You and, absolutely do. Because uh, I, I need to go to like the lawyers on campus because they have lawyers on campus that will patent well, things for me or whatever. Or not patent because it's not an invention, but copyright. So. Yeah. And, and it's a cool concept. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, you got something here, for sure. Well, thank you. Um, but yeah, yeah. I'm going to try to make it a non-profit. So, sneak peek to anybody listening. You can you can find, you know, uh, if I ever get famous and become the next Bill Nye or something. <laughs> that would you're be... going to be, you heard it first. Um, yeah. But, like, I've gotten a lot of ideas on recording videos for, like, little kids and... Um, like doing demos and outreach and people have been reaching out to me and being like, Hey, do you do K through 12? Do you do this kind of stuff? So, um, I really want to make it more of a solid thing. Um, cause like when people have been asking me like, Oh, are you trying to get into chemistry communication? And I'm like, well, I guess I've just stumbled into it. <laughs> Why not? You know, like you're, yeah. So, um, well, and you have a, you have a warmth to you. And a quirkiness to you that I've noticed, like, watching you on stage, mm-hmm. you know, because I've watched you on stage that I've always found unique, and I think that translates, so. Right, you're super likable. Yes, definitely. Well, like, approachable. You. People, like, even though you are smarter than almost everyone you meet, like, I yes. would say pretty much everyone you meet, especially in comedy. You you're definitely people, smarter than me. <laughs> you don't make people feel dumb. No. Mm-hmm. And you're very, like, willing to teach and stuff. Yep. Yeah, I mean, because my thing is, like, I grew up in a very rural area. Most people in my hometown did not go to college. Okay. Like, I grew up with people who, they don't they don't go to college. Like, I had a friend who was like, I really want to be a lawyer. He didn't make it. No. He works at Walmart. And, like, there's nothing wrong with working at Walmart. I'm not of trying to not. say that. But, like, the teachers in our schools were not trying to get us to go to college. Right, right. If you were from a family that their your parents didn't go to college, you weren't educated. Because, like, we had, you know, kids that were, their parents were the doctors, the lawyers of the town, right? True. They were the ones that were expected to go to college. Right. If you didn't have a parent that your teacher, because your teacher knew your parents. Your teacher probably went to school with your parents. Right, right. right? So, like, th- that stigma of, like, and again, we're talking about stigma. Right. That stigma of your parent. oh, your parents aren't good, so you are not good. Your parents aren't smart, so you are not smart. And that's just a lie. It totally. Because, like, and people think that, like, I developed this chemistry skill. Like, I, I made C's in a lot of my undergrad classes. Okay, like I, it's not like I naturally had this talent. Like I worked for it and anybody can work for it. And I truly do believe that. Sure. If you want to be a scientist, you want to be a chemist, you want to be a lawyer, a doctor, literally anything. 
just go start doing it because anybody telling you that you can't they're they're jealous or they have something in their head right it has nothing it says nothing about you it says how they view the world yeah. it says nothing about you and i, I agree truly believe that, that. yeah i, I think, agree with you yeah for sure because there's a lot of that like and especially in small towns like that mm-hmm. the expectation is only that you will get married and have a family exactly. and that's it and that's all that yeah. matters whatever job you have as the job you have and it's just about you know bringing more kids into the world this very traditional mindset versus like you should follow your dream even if your dream is like to own an ice cream shop or whatever it is yeah. like you should follow your dream you should tr- you should at least try mm-hmm. sure and it is really sad that there are so many and it's not all teachers obviously but there are so many teachers that want and like parents too that want their kids to be more practical like i yeah. hate that whenever no. your parents are like well that's not very practical i'm like i don't care yeah. like mm-hmm. I could have a family. I could do all that stuff whenever I wanted. You could always, you're always going to work, but you're not always going to be able to like follow something that really calls to you. Mm-hmm. And it like it does, it's not always about having like a natural talent. Like you said, it's, it's a lot not. of times you have to like push yourself. You have to work. And mm-hmm. I think there's a stigma to worth talent it. as well. Mm-hmm. Like I've known people that have just this raw, incredible talent but because of that, they don't work very hard. Right. They're, they just, or, or, or they have this raw, incredible talent and they work their butts off and people think it's just, oh, that's just natural talent. You didn't have to work at that. Right. And I'm like, oh no, that person's like an incredibly hard worker. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and congratulations. Cause you're getting your doctorate. Mm-hmm. God. And, and I was like, Dylan, and- that's, that's awesome. Dr. Dylan. Dr. Dylan. Not yet. <laughs> Soon, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, but I was very lucky. I, my family was always very, you're going to college. And so I really did have my family at my back. And sometimes when you oh, don't have cool. that support, it's a lot harder. But... Sure. Um, yeah. They were all... My family's always been very supportive. Good for like, you. My grandparents didn't graduate high school. Wow. Uh, my wow. grandma eventually went back and got a, a GRE... A GR... GED. GED. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so like they value my family valued education so sure yeah and really instilled that love and i love school instilled it in me so yeah i can tell you love to learn (laughs) yeah sorry what were you saying i I was just saying that's kind of like how my family was like my mom's my mom's mom had a fifth grade education Mm -hmm. but she was still able to figure out like how to budget and like she knew how to write she couldn't spell a lot of things and especially because she didn't really speak english that much Mm mm-hmm um, she was still able to, like, take care of her family, and all of her children went to college. Oh, yeah. Like, wow. my mom is one of 17. They all went to college. One of That's 17? Mm-hmm. Wow. Because she always taught them, like, you know, just because I didn't get to, you know, just because I didn't get to finish my education doesn't mean that you can't. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's incredible, too. Wow. One of 17. Dang. It's it's too many children, but <laughs> that's a reality show a right there. Um, what, yeah, whenever what that, is it, that ni- nineteen, you need, yeah. you need two more, and then you need a TV show. With nineteen kids and counting. <laughs> well, this more, was like also. <laughs> my mom was born in the sixties, right? So yeah, my grandmother was having common. kids for like twenty years, mm-hmm. and she. Whenever that nineteen kids and counting TV show first came out, my mom was really pissed. She was like, "I can't believe that these white people." <laughs> These white people get their own TV show, and they're making all this money, and uh, I used to have to share bath water with my sister. Oh. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> they did. Like, they had to share bath water. They had to share beds. They had to share everything. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. I mean, there were 17 of them. My grandparents were migrants, you know. Um, they had to work, from the time they were kids, they had to work in the cotton fields, like mm. pulling weeds. Uh, all of them did like the the boys started when they were like 10 and the girls started when they were like 12 but but you know they worked hard they have a good hard uh like 60s uh 50 60s 70s you know gotcha Hmm. well yeah if it's 17 kids it probably spans yeah it's it's, she was pregnant my mom was like yeah i don't know i always remember my mom just being pregnant all the time Mm -hmm. and she would just come home with the new kid wow but you know should have your mom on the podcast we should we can yeah she's a smart business lady cool but yeah i guess that natural stopping spot yeah um but thank you for listening and thank you for being on would you like to plug your social medias or anything uh it's just tori lane on facebook and i post uh 
weekly art piece these days. Cool. So thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, follow us at Cowboy Chem or Cowboy Chemistry or Cowboy Chemistry Podcast or one of those three on all the social medias because some were taken. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, thank you again for listening. Thank you for being on here. Follow us. Do things. Enter exit music. I'm bad at stopping. (laughs) Apoptosis is going mad, my liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made. A stardust in chemistry, a stardust in chemistry.